2: where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Connecticut state lawmakers are back in session. What will they accomplish before June, outside of passing a new two-year budget? Today, where we live, we talk with Representative Matt Ritter, who is the House Speaker of the Connecticut General Assembly. Will this be the year lawmakers approve recreational marijuana? Will criminal justice reforms continue to be a priority? And how will lawmakers address address issues in the pandemic that don't fall under Governor Lamont's emergency authority? You can join our conversation. What do you want lawmakers to accomplish this session? You can join us at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. As always, you can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Representative Ritter, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Lucy. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Now you are the new Connecticut House speaker. You were a majority leader in the Connecticut House and previously uh, you were a member of the Hartford uh, City Council. How does it feel in your new role?
1: It's exciting. Uh, It's a little different uh, because when I go to the Capitol and I'm in my office, I'm often alone, (laughs) not surrounded by the hustle and bustle of a normal legislative, uh, you know, day in in normal times. But I also um, Am you know prepared and understand that to serve in this time and given what we're going through in this country, um, you know demands a lot of attention and, and a lot of thought. And I'm doing my best to put all those things in every day when I make decisions.
2: Remind our listeners how um, the legislature le- legislature is operating. So the Capitol is still closed. So primarily, are your committee meetings on Zoom?
1: Yeah, so uh, the the committee meetings are all on Zoom. Um, We have, uh, I think, done a pretty good job. I haven't heard a ton of complaints. I know people would prefer to be in person, uh, but that's not doable right now. But it has created access for people who didn't have it before, because now instead of driving to the Capitol and taking a day off from work, you can log on from the comfort of your home, uh, not unlike work for some people. Uh, And we're seeing that so far the public hearings, the limited ones we've had, have gone pretty well. Uh, But everything's via Zoom, except when we vote. When we vote in the House and Senate, we have to vote in Hartford. Uh, And so our members uh, vote from their offices or in the chamber. Um, So that's the only real sense of normalcy, if you want to call it that, in the session right now.
2: And how are lawmakers doing with the shift using technology like Zoom and dealing with public comment online, Representative Ritter?
1: I think... A lot of them, we all. I think we all miss again the action, um, the, the daily interactions that we have with each other, and the conversations, and understand there's limitations to the way we're doing things. But I think for a lot of members, um, you know, this is they understand this is the safe way to do it, and we're doing. You know, we found a way to do it and make it work. So I, I you know, I haven't heard a ton of complaining. Uh, maybe behind my back there is, but they understand the situation, and we're, look, we're very hopeful that as we get into May and June, and certainly beyond that, that we'll be able to reopen the capital to the public again.
2: So you laid out some of the rules uh, that the Legislature is operating under. Uh, We know that uh, Governor Lamont uh, just recently signed a declaration extending his pandemic emergency authority to April 20th. That authority would have expired February 9th, and the Governor says it's needed at a time to continue to monitor uh, the cases that have been rising in our state, also how vaccinations are being administered. And everyone's worried about uh, this more contagious uh, variant, uh, more than one, uh, this virus that has now entered our state. I understand you and your counterpart in the Senate, Senate President Martin Looney agreed to the governor's extension of these emergency um, authorization, these powers. Why did you do that?
1: Yeah, and just before why we did it, let's also talk about what we agreed to, which is the statute authorizes the governor to request up to six months. And when we negotiated with the governor, we said we need to go into smaller increments. Um, when we voted to do it last September, the facts on the ground were very different. We knew we were going to have a very difficult winter, uh, ex- expectations where that was going to happen. We also were not in session. Legislators were campaigning. Uh, the six-month extension made sense till we got back into session. Now that we're in session, now that vaccines are being rolled out, we look at the emergency power timeline and think it should be smaller. So that's why we agreed to a 70-day uh, you know, extension, not six months or something longer than that. Now, why did we do it? Why do I think it's necessary? Look at the facts on the ground. I, I was saying to someone in my caucus the other day, the vaccine site at Rentschler Field in East Hartford, okay? The governor probably and his administration probably had to waive or overrule five to 10 existing statutes and regulations Uh, in state law which only they can only do under the emergency power who can administer vaccines procurement issues uh, permitting issues all this stuff to fast track it you need to have fast track authority but here's the thing if the governor does something that's not pandemic related if he's if he's going beyond the bounds of restaurant capacity and mask wearing all things that he should have authority to do because you have to recalibrate very quickly depending on positivity rates if he starts entering to a world or a domain that the legislature feels is beyond that authority or is too much, we can always vote and overrule it. So what I remind people is there is a, a major check and balance. And if he, for example, I talked to the governor, you know, we talk often, I said, look, if you start appropriating funds from the federal government that are unallocated, for example, we will go into session and we will block you in five seconds. So those are red lines that we've set out. But in terms of restaurant capacity and mass, all these things, you know, what, how many people can be in a church on a given Sunday or attend a certain ball game, that stuff's got to be done very quickly. And the legislature is not built to work quickly and it's best left to the executive in that context.
2: Now, we heard on Monday, Republican House Minority Leader Vincent Candelora raise objections to this plan to extend the governor's pandemic emergency authority. Uh, This is the same uh, objections that you've heard uh, in previous times when it's been extended. Uh, Candelora saying that the continued exercise of emergency powers has become a matter of convenience. Let's hear more of what he shared.
1: What we were asking for is to draw back on the unfettered power that's being extended, and we offered some reasonable modifications. We would like the legislature uh, going forward to start voting on these extensions of the executive authority, and then we think that um, certain you know, reasonable accommodations should be met.
2: So how do you respond to Representative Candelora's point, I mean, he describes this as unfettered power, I would assume you would refute that, but in terms of thinking about a way where uh, the legislature could come on a more um, frequent basis uh, to handle some of uh, these uh, questions before the governor, instead of leaving him the only person to have that authority representative?
1: Well, first of all, um, the Minority Leader and I have a, a wonderful relationship, so I hope anybody who's listening can understand that we can disagree, but we do so very amicably. Uh, it's not Washington. It, you know, it's not um, what you see and, and what has really become an unfortunate part of our, our democracy over the last couple of years. So let me respond to my friend, okay? What he's really calling for is that there's this public health committee of 10 that has the right to reject the governor's declaration of emergency powers. I think what the minority leader would like is the full legislature to weigh in on that. I'm open to that conversation. Uh, If if he's saying that a a committee of 10, this is a statute we're operating under that was drafted in 2009 under then-Governor Rell. Um, If he says, you know, we should do it a different way, I'm open to having that conversation. But be clear what he's not saying. I don't think they're saying that we don't need the governor to have emergency power. Um, Everybody understands the next two months are so critical with vaccine rollout that if we don't get this right, we're going to set ourselves back. But if we do get it right, if we're swift, if we have the the tools and the flexibility to get vaccines to people, um, to include mask mandates, restriction and capacity in certain places, as we get to Memorial Day, boy, this state could be in a great spot. So I know what he's saying, but I also don't think he's saying that the authorization he has now is unnecessary.
2: Well, what about this other suggestion that Representative Candelora and Senate Republican Minority Leader, uh, Mr. Kelly, suggests limiting the emergency powers to one month increments and holding a vote of the full General Assembly every 30 days? Is that practical?
1: Um, It's not impractical when we're more in session. Uh, I I did ask the Minority Leader about that. I said, what would you do out of session? Because we're having conversations. But let's play this out. House Republicans and Senate Republicans said, let's do 30 days. The governor probably wanted 90 to 120 we settled on 70. I did not go to uh, negotiation school, but what I'm told is that's probably a good compromise.
2: (laughs) You're an attorney though, right? You know how to negotiate. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I do,
1: but you know, I mean, think about that. No, we should be 30 and the governor says it should be 120 and we land at 70 and you go, you know what? That probably makes a lot of sense. And we try to, I think Marty and I take pride in trying to listen to both sides when we, when we get, in this case, you know, this was really something that we had to work with the majority leader, you know, Senator, representative Rojas and Senator Duff on. I think we find pride in this compromise. Yeah.
2: You're hearing, again, House Speaker Matt Ritter here on Where We Live as we talk about this upcoming session. It has started, again, pandemic rules, changing the way the legislature operates. Uh, There's a lot on the plate of the legislature this session, including passing a balanced two-year budget. If you have questions, Representative Ritter, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So this Emergencies Powers Law, it passed about a decade ago. Do you think that it needs to be reviewed?
1: I do. And I think everybody would agree who's had to operate under it. I mean, I go back to when Joy R. Simmons was speaker and, you know, Len Fasano and Themis Claridis and myself and, and Bob and Marty were looking at this. It, you know, it was it's not a perfect statute. Everybody acknowledges that. And I think we will revise it at some point. I think um, there are some really good suggestions and tweaks to it that we could make. Uh, and so, yeah, I think we will revisit it. How that ends up or when that, when we do that, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, I don't think anybody could have planned for where we find ourselves today. I think that's clear.
2: I was curious if you could weigh in. You mentioned the vaccination uh, clinic or the mass vaccination site at Rensselaer Field. Uh, there's a lot that uh, the governor and the Department of Public Health are having to coordinate. But we're hearing a lot from residents uh, who are having trouble signing on uh, to get the vaccine if they're eligible other people have been able to get vaccinated when they shouldn't again is this something that lawmakers should also be a part of in this 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 conversation about how to protect your constituents
1: i think where legislators are most helpful is relaying the information um relaying where they're seeing problems in their local health department or people accessing phone lines I'm not really sure what law you could pass, because at the end of the day, you need more vaccines. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. If the state had more, we could administer more. Um, I also view my job, I I talk to the hospitals regularly in Hartford that I represent. Uh, I'm talking to local health officials. I know that my colleagues are. Getting that information back to the state, I think, is the most helpful way. And we are doing that. And I look, I think Based upon the ramp up that the Biden administration is looking at uh, and just the natural ability of Moderna and Pfizer to produce more vaccines more quickly, uh, the hopefulness of Johnson and Johnson, we may know more next week. I know where we are today. I don't think we'll be in that position a month from now uh, when we when we begin to really think about large scale vaccinations.
2: Earlier, you talked about uh, with the pandemic, uh, it has helped strengthen public engagement uh, with some of these uh, hearings on on Zoom, these committee meetings. But when we talk about the work of the legislature, you know, how has uh, it? Uh, what have you lost because of the pandemic rules? I'm thinking about a lot of those just conversations in the hallway, maybe meeting with some some lobbyists uh, um, who are maybe concerned or promoting a particular bill. Representative Ritter,
1: yeah, I, I, it's exactly right, and. Um, It's hard over Zoom to sometimes, you know, do a a negotiation and go line by line and see people's body language and reactions and people speak over each other. Then, you know, you can't hear somebody, their computer freezes. But at the end of the day, what it says to me is we will prioritize major decisions. We are mindful that the way we're legislating makes it hard to probably do the same number of bills that we've done in previous years. And that's my job and the majority leader's job is to tell our caucus, look, these are the priorities. Let's get those done.
2: You're hearing House Speaker Representative Matt Ritter here on Where We Live. We're going to talk about some of his priorities for this session. We know that you have a lot of uh, suggestions out there, listeners, about issues you hope lawmakers will tackle this session. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalpith broadcasting remotely. It's the first month of the Connecticut General Assembly's regular session, and in just a few weeks, state lawmakers will receive Governor Lamont's budget proposal. This year's budget is projected to end in a surplus, but lawmakers still need to agree to a new two-year budget that is, as of now has deficits totaling $2.5 billion. Now, beyond the budget, what else do lawmakers hope to accomplish? You can join our conversation if you have a question for Representative Matt Ritter. He's Speaker of the House in the Connecticut General Assembly, here's the number 888-720-9677. That's eight 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 seven two 720 wnpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, we know that the Public Health Committee, uh, Representative Ritter is again considering a bill that would phase out the religious exemption to school vaccine requirements. So children already enrolled who've, uh, whose parents have refused vaccinations on religious grounds would still be able to continue doing so under this bill. But the bill, if it becomes law, students in the future will be permitted to go to school without being vaccinated uh, with only using a medical exemption, if that's an exemption that um, they choose. The religious exemptions often used by parents who think vaccines have been, are dangerous, although doctors and public health experts say they're safe and effective. This was a priority for you last year, but the pandemic cut the legislative session short. Uh, tell me about uh, why you think this needs to happen this session.
1: I don't think the conversation has really changed. Um, What prompted this, this is before COVID-19, and we now see what happens when we have a a virus running uncontrolled without vaccination protection. We have seen in Connecticut, going back and looking at the data, a huge increase in these religious exemptions. What used to be about 400 students in 2007 is now thousands. We have over 100 schools um, that do not have 95 percent um the herd immunity number that cdc recommends in the individual schools admittedly for some of them it's 94 93 and maybe there's some paperwork issues and it is a little higher but we had at least 10 schools in the 70 percent range new york got rid of this two years ago or a year ago with governor cuomo um, they had measles outbreaks and it was causing major concern um again 99 percent of the schools in connecticut or you know a big vast majority are, are very high vaccination rates but we see these pockets and. It's not to pick on people. It's, it's not my bill. There is the majority of the House and the Senate who are going to support the bill. The question is, what does it look like? Um, we can talk about, you know, grandfathering to some extent for some years, um, but at the end of the day, vaccines are safe. They need to be taken because the people who get impacted most by um, high non-vaccination rates and measles outbreaks are those who cannot be vaccinated, not because of choice, but because of medical reasons. This issue came to me from a constituent Whose uh, daughter is battling a very severe illness? She cannot get live vaccines. Uh, she cannot get vaccinated from, you know, measles and mumps. And she was just alarmed by the growing, you know, trend in this state. And so I have to think about protecting. And I think my colleagues do those types of individuals. So we will follow New York. Uh, we will follow what Maine did. Actually, Maine was by referendum. Uh, it's a pattern you're seeing in the northeast states to say, look. If a doctor finds a medical reason you can't get vaccinated, that's fine. But otherwise, um, you're going to have to make other other arrangements.
2: You said this isn't your bill, but do you agree with the grandfathering provisions in the bill? If you have a certain percentage of students that are not vaccinated and how it can impact immunocompromised other students in the schools?
1: You know, here's here's what I'd say. You know, I try to be a, a Dr. Fauci person. Right. I try to listen to science and pediatricians and you know, the the argument, though, on the other side is take a sophomore at you pick a high school. We'll just use Smith High School where the vaccination rate is 98 percent. You know, do I want I mean, kicking that kid out of school immediately? I don't know. That's what New York did. Just to be very clear. New York kicked out, I think, 26000 kids within a month. And that's probably where scientists would say you should go. But, uh, you know, I, I I am sympathetic to understanding that this is a it, it is about looking and stabilizing rates uh, for years to come. And I think we can draft a bill that tries to accommodate these two concerns. But it's, you can see how difficult it is. I, I know that um, for the community that does not support this legislation, this thought process is that the Democrats are you know, heartless. And, and it's far from that. We understand how difficult it is, but we are trying to protect science and public health, and we are going to do that.
2: Uh, We asked Republican House Minority Leader Vincent Candelora about, uh, again, this bill to take away religious exemptions. Uh, He says that barring children from school because they've not gotten vaccinated is too draconian. Here's more of what he said.
1: I've always been concerned about that idea, because if you carry it forward, we're essentially going to be denying children a right to a public education. And if we're going to deny that constitutional right, we really have to balance the public health interest.
2: And how do you respond to that point? The parents who have a religious exemption for their children say they also have a right to a public school education.
1: Yeah, well, it's, there's Supreme Court case law in the United States going back to the early 1900s. There's a, a leading case out of Massachusetts where this issue came up, and, and no, no court has overruled it since. See, the, the problem with that argument is let's play it out. So what if right now the, the growth is so large, what if we get to a point where we have 25 30,000 kids who say nah i'm all set i'm not going to do it you're going to have many many schools right now it's about 100 you'll have hundreds of schools that fall below 95 percent in the cdc recommendation where does it end so i guess what, what people are saying is well you know it's it's too bad people should be vaccinated but they have this right well it could it could never stop you know the the religious exemption can be used and it has been and abused to create this mass amount of individuals who are refusing to vaccinate their children. And what you're going to be left with is measles outbreaks. And I don't think my job or the legislature's job is to respond when a measles outbreak happens. I think our job is to legislate to prevent a measles outbreak.
2: You're hearing Representative Matt Ritter, on where we live. He's House Speaker of the Connecticut General Assembly. If you have a question, you can join us, 888 720 wmpr Catherine's calling in from South Windsor. Catherine, go ahead. Hi there. Um, I guess my
0: question, through the events of the summer, I've gotten more involved in racial justice activism, and I'm wondering what you all are doing to declare racism a public health crisis.
2: Representative Ritter. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I know that some towns have done that. In Connecticut, It's we, we, right now, The I'm working with the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, and we're working on different bills on health issues, and we may be able to include it in that. Um, you know, we don't really do resolutions like that in the Connecticut legislature, so we'd have to embed it in some sort of bill. Um, but we're having that conversation, and, and more importantly, you know, it's one thing to declare it. It's another thing than to pass legislation. So let me tell you what we're working on that I think addresses a lot of these concerns. Whether, I mean, healthcare first and foremost, uh, I think you will see in the next month or so a rollout of the largest expansion of healthcare affordability and access in the history of the state of Connecticut, and one of the largest, I think, in the United States of America since the Obamacare uh, law was passed in 2010. We're going to subsidize the exchange to make it cheaper. We're going to increase Husky A and Husky D uh, for very impoverished residents. We're going to make sure small businesses and nonprofits have stop loss or you know reinsurance policies in place subsidized by the state and the federal government so on that front you'll see major major gains
2: I wanted to move on and talk about an issue that I know some of our listeners uh, often call in and ask the governor about, and that is uh, allowing the sale of recreational marijuana in Connecticut. Do you think this will be the year that lawmakers can reach agreement? It's I guess it's not as simple as just passing a law to say, yes, this is permitted, but also looking at decriminalization and expungement, Representative Ritter
1: yeah and and going back to even the question about you know uh, racism as a public health emergency and and, you know this goes back to equity right and so does marijuana but let me just on the health side you know we're even talking about doing a health equity uh, you know beefing up a health equity commission and other things and giving them tools to really dive into data so we're again we're going to address that first question from Catherine in South Windsor on marijuana look my biggest concern right now is that we don't get a bill not because we don't have the votes but that we don't get a bill because there's just such a, a dug-in um, pocket of individuals on certain issues, and so you know the, the challenge of leadership is: Do I think we have the votes in the House? I don't know. I think the Senate may be a little ahead of us based on what I'm reading and hearing. Um, we're trying to get there, but it, you know it's it's a different issue for somebody else. It's a whack-a-mole problem, and so if you solve for one, you lose somebody else on the other end. So. Uh, I'm convening a meeting with some some top chairs and, and Majority Leader Rojas, at least on the House side in the next week, we're gonna really go through this, then try to figure out the vote counting issue and, and solve for it. But I'd say it's 50-50 at this point if we can pass it. And I'm don't, and i someone who, who's been in favor of it since I got elected. Um, but I wanna be honest with the public and transparent, it's not a slam dunk that we can pass this. And it's gonna mm-hmm. require people to probably move on some of their positions to get it done. Um, but the default position, Lucy, is if we don't have the votes, I think we should just send it to the voters. Um, and that's how it's been legalized in almost every state. I think, except maybe Vermont, which I think only allows homegrown anyway. Um, and we'll put it to the voters if need be.
2: When we, uh, you'd mentioned that you've been a proponent of this uh, for some time. What is the reason? Is it that uh, you know you believe in the, the decriminalization uh, of this uh, this drug, or the fact that we've got neighboring states like Massachusetts making a, making a lot of money that you know would help uh, Connecticut's coffers as well
1: yeah I mean I I'm done with the revenue though and and people roll their eyes when I say that I don't I don't care Lucy what it really brings in because at some point you're going to have the situation where um every state's legalized it or most have in the northeast there's not a lot of revenue that you're going to gain from it but let me tell you why it's important number one is the expungement of records um, is an important part of this bill um number two it is a business opportunity and does provide good paying jobs and and protect potentially bringing jobs to areas that were you know ravaged by the war on drugs but let me tell you the third one and this is where it just this is like sports gaming is the same thing for me at some point the public goes stop it already you know why can't why do i have to drive to springfield or why do i have to drive to new york or rhode island you you fools in the legislature figure this stuff out and people say well you know, marijuana in Connecticut, it's called a car. And I know this is shocking to people, but what folks do is they get in the car. Sometimes they let it run for five minutes till it gets nice and warm. And they drive to Springfield and they buy marijuana and they come back. Or they drive to Rhode Island and they place a sports bet. Uh, it's just, it's all around you. And the question is, Connecticut, can get in the business of, of, of monitoring it, uh, making sure we take away the black market, giving this to businesses that have run the medical marijuana program very, very well and very professionally? Or are we going to pretend that people can't drive ten miles to Springfield? I'd prefer to do the former and not the latter.
2: And what about the concern from the other side, worried about the message it sends to young people?
1: That argument in two thousand eleven was quite strong. That argument, I just I don't understand it anymore. When you have New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and, and Rhode Island, maybe a little behind New York. Um, I think New York will be the next state. I just, I don't know what to tell people. You're right. I I think, you know, if you drink liquor in large quantities, guess what? It's not good for you either. If you eat really unhealthy foods, it's not good for you either. At some point, I just don't know what to say about that argument. It will be for adults only, but it is available five miles or 10 miles or 15 miles from people, and they're allowed to drive and bring it back. We don't have fortified borders. So I don't know how Connecticut can pretend that somehow we can send a different message to a 21-year-old kid when that message is completely legal and right in front of you five miles away.
2: If this were something that did pass and became law, would this be something where the legislature could set aside money to have a better education about uh, addiction and and drug abuse uh, for young people?
1: Yes, we could. Absolutely, and I think that is part of some of the proposals.
2: You brought up uh, sports gaming, so I've got to bring it up, too. Uh, Yesterday at a legislative forum, Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chair Rodney Butler uh, quoted in the mirror saying, we're at the one yard line and we've just got to punch it in at this point when he's talking about a deal with the tribes on sports betting. Are you really close?
1: uh you know the one yard line you know uh i'll say this we don't have 50 yards to go i don't know if we have one uh maybe it's somewhere in between um but i think everybody wants to get this done and and i think we will but i remind people the governor has an outsized influence in this because he has to sign the compact amendment and so i remind legislators that even if you have different ideas um there's just this is like the state bond commission the governor just has certain powers that are are his and inherently his in his office so i'm really letting them take the lead um but do i think it'll pass this year i think i can say i do because i think people realize this is again it's just it's silly and i just i I get i i hate hearing from people not that everyone says well sports gaming is not the most important issue i know it's not the most important issue i couldn't agree more it's probably not even in the top 10 that we have to worry about but it's just silly just cut the deal
2: I mentioned at the top of the show, Representative Ritter. And again, if you have a question for him, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, The state budget picture uh, looks... Okay, Uh, through the end of this fiscal year, now that we're seeing a a bigger rainy day fund, the fact that there's a bit of a surplus, uh, there's optimism that the federal government will be sending more money uh, to Connecticut. Does it make uh, passing this recreational marijuana bill uh, less of a priority?
1: I don't think it makes it less of a priority because even if we legalized it, I maybe in year two of the biennium budget, you begin to see some revenue. But again, it wouldn't bring in that much and we wouldn't see it immediately. But you, you hit on a big point, which is our budget picture has has improved dramatically and I think will continue to get better. Um, we were looking at, OFA thought in March of 2020, we'd have a $2 billion deficit for this fiscal year, okay, for this fiscal year ending June 30th. That is now a $170 million surplus, plus, plus $200 million, $250 million in volatility cap, which is extra income tax receipts. So you're really running about a $400 to $500 million surplus. I have never seen a swing that large. Uh, It's like the Mets in the 60s when they went from winning like two games (laughs) to winning the World Series. That's how we feel right now.
2: So let's talk about taxes. Uh, Several Democratic lawmakers have proposed different ways to reduce the tax burden on middle-class and low-income people in our state. Researchers, we know this: uh, the middle-class and low-income residents pay a larger percentage of their income in taxes than wealthy people in people in our state. Uh, Representative uh, Sean Scanlon has suggested a child tax credit that could send between six hundred and $1,800 to middle-class families. Again, this will be paid for with higher taxes on wealthy residents. Just the other day, Senate President Martin Looney suggesting a so-called mansion tax on the value of houses worth more than $433,000. Again, that money then would be redistributed statewide to poor cities and towns. And I understand you're also holding a press conference with Representative Walker later today related to a poverty tax. So can you talk about your priority this session to help uh, middle class and low income residents, uh, many who've lost their jobs and aren't able to save as much as others in our state?
1: Yeah, so let's talk quickly about um, the two thirty press conference that I'm having with the chairman of the Appropriations Committee, my my dear friend Tony Walker, who's texting me uh, right now as well on another issue. Um, we're, we're always working on the budget. Um, there is a in Connecticut. There we are one of the few states, very few in the country, that have this additional lien on individuals um, who have been on welfare. First of all, Connecticut is very strict welfare laws. Uh, again, we're one of the strictest in the country. I think it's a thirty three month cap. And what happens is somebody who, for 12 months, uh, who needs help from state assistance, that's what it's there for, for whatever reason happens, um, 25 years later, they, they're working, they have a house, they get a lien when they try to sell that house on their property from the Department of, of Social Services for repayment of that. Um, it's, it's basically a poverty tax. It is it is keeping people uh, in a situation forever. Um, it's, it's not allowing them to transfer wealth uh, to people. And some will say, well, they were on welfare. We should you know, they should repay it. No, not many states do that. I think we're one of four that do that because the realization is welfare is there to help people. It's a hand up. It's not meant to be a forever stigma, or in this case, a financial uh, drain on families. Uh, if Connecticut had a really liberal welfare policy, I, I might view that differently. I think what happened, Lucy, in the 1990s, I could be wrong, I really am having my staff look at this, is when they tightened the welfare policies in Connecticut, to limit how long you could be on and so forth. They forgot about this lien statute. The lien statute probably makes more sense if people have a lot more, you know, uh, if you can be on welfare for a much longer time. Well, you can't in Connecticut. And so getting rid of this lien policy and this poverty tax, as we're calling it, um, is a humanitarian thing. It will build wealth in communities. And it's not just urban areas. I hear stories from people in Naugatuck in Eastern Connecticut who have the same problem. Um, these are not wealthy, wealthy people, um, and we shouldn't punish them forever for doing what they're supposed to do, which is when they're struggling, go to the government and say, "I need some help for a few months." That's what we do as Americans. On to the budget. I, you know, we will see where we get come April. Consensus revenue estimates will be due out then. Um, but you know, everything's looking in a good direction. And so, w- what I'm telling my caucus is, let's think about the things that we want to fund from the state budget and from federal revenues. And once we know what it is around job training, around healthcare care policy. Um, around, you know, funding our schools to make sure they reopen safely. Once we have that list, then let's look where the revenue is and see what we have to do to get there. But I don't go in with any assumptions or notions about what we have to do on the revenue side until I see where the full budget picture is.
2: And speaking to the proposals from your colleagues, Representative Scanlon and also Senate President uh, Martin Looney, uh, both different proposals, but uh, would require higher taxes on the wealthy. Do you support that?
1: If we need revenue, Okay, If we get into April and I can't, or we can't, we can't pay for healthcare, Husky A, we can't fund public schools. Yes, I do. If we get to April uh, and we're doing all the things we want to do, I think it takes the steam out of the argument of revenue at this point in time. Um, We also have a spending cap. I have to remind people that we just can't spend whatever we want. We have a constitutional spending cap that will restrict us. So We will also be looking at federal funds. If we get a huge influx of federal dollars, which I expect we will, I think that takes a lot of pressure off the state on the revenue side. But what I will not do is support an austerity budget. What I will not do is raise the sales tax or or look to middle class taxes. It ain't happening. If there's a revenue shortfall, there has to be progressivity to make up for that in light of this pandemic and in light of the reality of the ability to pay. But I also am not assuming things or making decisions until I see the full picture.
2: So uh, when we think about, again, these proposals that would require tax increases for wealthy people, uh, this is something that Governor Lamont doesn't want to see. So, again, you're, it's a wait-and-see approach for you to see where what the numbers look like now before you decide if this is a way that you want to go.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, for example, the Senate president and I, I think, will announce sometime in the coming weeks, Marty's already done this on his own, you know, an increase in pilot to our cities, right? New Haven, Hartford, long overdue. We're going to do it. We're going to do that. The question is, do we have enough revenue in the existing budgetary structure to do that? And I think the answer will be yes. But again, we, we don't know till April. So again, it's a matter of looking at appropriations and expenditures and federal dollars and matching it all up. Um, the child tax credit, I, you know, Sean, obviously is somebody who I appointed to chair finance and I have great confidence in him. It's a great idea. Uh, is, you know, what it's going to come down to, though, is where are we from the approach side and the expenditure side? I know everyone wants answers today and they want bills today. And we got to, that's not a good way to legislate. We legislate based upon facts and when we have all the information and we will not have that till late April.
2: So we'll have to have you back then.
1: <laughs> you, can, you can have me back then. And I, I think what you'll find is exactly what I said, which is we have a really good budget picture, really good revenues we're paying for the things that we need to pay for to get over this pandemic and address long-standing inequalities. And I think you'll see a massive federal stimulus that will help all states, not not blue states, not red states, all states recover from this pandemic more quickly.
2: Uh, We're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you uh, other uh, priorities that lawmakers could potentially tackle this session, including we saw a record number of people voting in this election, uh, thanks to no excuse absentee ballots. There's also been a call again for early voting in our state. Uh, Is this something that you want to see your colleagues uh, vote on this session?
1: Absolutely. So the first one is early voting. That we need to vote and approve to send to the voters to amend our state constitution. That will happen in 2022. No excuse absentee balloting will require 75% of the House and Senate to send that question to the voters in this November. I don't know if we'll hit that target. If we don't, that'll be on the ballot in 2024. But it's it's a full out sprint to change these laws. But unfortunately, we do have to go and amend the constitution. We can't do it statutorily.
2: Uh, you have uh, become a leader uh, in the legislature. Uh, people often point to your age and the fact that uh, you've been gotten to this point uh, quickly. But as a legislative leader, and I have to ask, what is your role in recruiting new and, my, and more diverse residents to run in the General Assembly?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we have, I, I believe, done a great job of that. I, I know there were some reports out there that we fell back a little bit, but all I can tell you is we've had a record number of, of women win. We've had uh, minority women, women, suburban districts for the first time ever. One was in town a couple of years ago, now in Norwalk area, uh, Stephanie Thomas. Um, we're always working. A lot of it's the local town committee. It's not like I can swoop in and just pick somebody uh, who, who's not supported locally. But when they give us a when, – when candidates are, are nominated – We are full in. And that's really where, you know, the power of my office comes in is we have the resources and the staff. And, you know, we take that. That is probably my most serious charge outside of the Capitol. And I take it very seriously.
2: We know that there are women legislators who hold prominent committee chair positions, but there are no women caucus leaders. Is that something that should change, Representative Ritter?
1: It should and it will. Um, You know, it's a a vote of the caucus. Um, So at the end of the day, I can't change it. I don't appoint the House Majority Leader or the House Speaker. It's it's a vote of of your caucuses. But I think it I think it's a matter of just who's willing to run and who's willing to step up. And uh, at some point, I think you will see that change very,
2: very soon representative matt ritter again is speaker of the house in the connecticut general assembly again uh, we hope to have you back soon to talk about uh, this uh, budget picture and the other priorities that move through the session
1: thanks appreciate you having me lucy and i look forward to being back on soon
2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. On next Wednesday, we're gonna hear from Governor Ned Lamont on the show. We'll take your questions too. Again, that's next Wednesday. Now coming up, we're gonna get some analysis from Christine Stewart, editor of the CT News Junkie and a reporter for NBC Connecticut. You can join us too, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall broadcasting remotely. We just heard from Representative Matt Ritter, the new House Speaker in the Connecticut General Assembly. Joining us now is Christine Stewart, owner and editor-in-chief of Connecticut News Junkie, CT News Junkie, and a reporter for NBC Connecticut. Hi, Christine. Good morning. Uh, You've been covering the Capitol for some time. Anything that stood out to you in the way that Representative Ritter answered some of those questions?
0: No, what I think is really interesting is that, you know, at the age of 38, he's going to be the youngest speaker of the House. And so as the youngest speaker of the House, he also has... Two children. Right. And we also have uh, Representative Jason Rojas of East Hartford, who is going to be the majority leader, who also has young children. So I think um, for the first time in a long time, we have these legislative leaders in a position of power. Uh, at a time where we're dealing with all these, you know, uh, COVID restrictions and school and remote learning. And as parents, they're actually going through that and experiencing that with all of us who, you know, have school age children. Um, And so I'm just wondering how much all of that is going to influence the public policy that comes out of the legislature. Because I think for the first time in a long time, um, there's a greater understanding of, of family um, from the lawmakers who are, um, you know, at the forefront. I think from, you know, the, uh, the child um, tax credit um, from Representative Sean Scanlon, I think that, you know, for, from tax policy, from social policy, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see where they end up.
2: When we think about the challenges of this session, again, still in the pandemic, Representative Ritter alluding to, they may not get as many bills out as they have in previous sessions. So what do you think will be the priorities, Christine?
0: You know, it's really hard to tell at this point um, because it is going to take longer. Uh, these committee meetings have have taken longer um, just to simply raise um, some of these concepts. Um, but I think he hit on all the big ones. I mean, I think that, you know, sports betting, uh, um, recreational marijuana, um, eliminating the religious exemption to vaccines uh, for childhood immunizations. Um, I think that those are big issues. I think that also, uh, you know, nursing home uh, immunity, anything that has to deal uh, with uh, with COVID and going over the governor's uh, executive orders. Um, I mean, I think that they can walk into gum at the same time, and they're going to try to consolidate some of these. And I think what's going to end up happening is that they're going to consolidate them into these like omnibus bills um, that is probably going to force people to vote for something that they might not necessarily completely agree with. Um, But for uh, the time that they have, this is going to be the way in which they're going to be able to do it.
2: The building's pretty quiet over there on Capitol Ave. Uh, when we think about how lobbyists do their jobs in previous sessions and how, uh, you know, they too um, are going to have to you know, deal with online meetings or hoping to get phone calls with legislators. How are you seeing lobbyists having to shift the way they get access to people like Representative Ritter?
0: Yeah. So it's been really difficult because, you know, if you're a lobbyist and you're calling one of these lawmakers and, you know, you have to hope that they pick up the phone or hope that they agree to do a, a virtual meeting because they could they could ignore you if they want to. And also just simply having all of the lawmakers' cell phone numbers um, has been a challenge for, for a lobbyist um, because there were, you know, genuinely some people that you just bump into in the hallway and you you can't do that anymore. I mean, you know, the, the cafeteria is closed. The building is closed. Um, there's there's nobody there. Uh, the lights are on, but uh, it's hard to it's hard to get to um, some of these lawmakers.
2: I'm glad you mentioned the cafeteria, because so for insiders, that sometimes when you see who's sitting with who in the cafeteria, you know (laughs) there's some dealing happening, right?
0: (laughs) Uh, No, there definitely is, and I mean, you know, that was where you went to go to, you know, get and collect and gather information, Um, and so that that you know, I guess the water cooler conversations, um, the cafeteria conversations, aren't going to be happening anymore, Uh, and that makes it really difficult to to figure out where people stand because you can have a conversation with one lawmaker but that's one lawmaker there's 187 of them (laughs) so it's it's a it's quite a difficult task
2: and what about the reporters able to to do their work uh, as efficiently efficiently as in the past Uh, does this impact the public's understanding of what's happening uh, this session christine
0: yeah, I mean, it is a matter of getting a hold of lawmakers, but I've actually found it really easy. Um, all these lawmakers are um, very accessible. Everybody knows how to do Teams and Zoom and um, all these other you know virtual meeting things. Uh, it hasn't been uh, as hard as you think it would be, um, but you know, there are some challenges to you know remember when this virtual meeting is happening when you used to be able to just go and bump into somebody uh, in the hallway or attend the meeting and and grab them after the meeting to to get the interview. So it's been it's been a challenge for us too.
2: Representative Ritter seemed to want to take a wait and see approach related to some of his colleagues proposals uh, to help low and middle income about how to pay for these proposals to help low and middle income uh, families in our state. I know the governor doesn't want to see tax increases on the wealthy. Uh, What do you anticipate to see in the next few weeks uh, related to the, the governor's budget proposal and how some of these other proposals may play out, Christine?
0: Yeah, that's going to be a battle because I think that people are forgetting that we still have the governor's budget that he introduces in February is still going to have to close a two-year, $2 billion budget deficit. So, um, you know, cuts uh, or or revenue increases are going to have to come from, from somewhere. Um, and I know that he doesn't like, the governor doesn't like some of these, uh, like Senator Looney's um, statewide property tax proposal. Um, He doesn't think that there's any reason at this point to, to raise any taxes. So it's going to be, it'll be another battle between the legislature and the governor and they're still getting to know each other. They only had one year before um, COVID put an end to um, their relationship for the most part. So it should be interesting.
2: We have seen other legislatures under other Democratic governors, uh, Daniel Malloy, uh, where, uh, you know, they've really kind of done their own thing and they don't necessarily need uh, the governor's uh, permission or approval. Do you anticipate that kind of relationship uh, with this session or is it still pretty congenial?
0: It's still pretty congenial at this point, but uh, you know there is there is that risk too that you know the legislature could go off and and do what it needs to do and ignore ignore Governor Lamont or you know override any of the the vetoes he may have um, so I guess it remains to be seen. They do have the veto proof majority in the Senate. Um, they don't quite have that uh, uh, in the house yet, but it's um. They do wield quite a bit of power, and they are back in session.
2: Our last question, Christine. Representative Ritter wanted to make it clear at the beginning that he sees Representative Candelora as a friend. Do you anticipate, even though there is that Democratic majority in both chambers, that there will be uh, more uh, collaboration with the Democrats and, and the Republicans, or will their proposals, the GOP proposals, uh, go nowhere?
0: No, I think that there does have to be more collaboration and I think that they are walking a fine line and and trying to figure out how to um, not only work uh, together, um, but they know that there's not a lot that's going to be able to be brought up. The session, even though it's the long session, is going to seem much shorter uh, in this virtual space. So if they want to get anything done, they are going to have to work together.
2: That's Christine Stewart, owner and editor in chief of Connecticut News Junkie, CT News Junkie, and a reporter for NBC Connecticut. I know CT News Junkie has a new website. Uh, We've already been uh, checking out all of your work, Christine, and your colleagues. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.